the realities that every preacher faces in this world. A mystery. Wondering when the church is going to be keeping their ears peeled with wheat and tired of listening to them and filling up into the building to turn the camera off and cut my screen. I'm glad to be with you this morning. We're starting a new study in the book of Genesis on Wednesday nights. <clears throat> we just completed a year study of Luke's writings in the Gospel of Luke and in the book of Acts. We're going to begin on Sunday evenings a study of First and Second Peter. Tom Stevenson's going to be leading us in that study. On Wednesday evenings, we're going to be studying the book of Genesis, and uh, we will be looking at some themes along the way from the book of Genesis next Wednesday evening. Bobby Bradford is going to be teaching Genesis chapter 1, the creation chapter, and so you will want to be preparing for that. This Wednesday evening, we'll be doing an introduction uh, to the book of Genesis. I'm looking forward to that study. This morning, I just want to spend just a few moments of time thinking about some of the implications of Genesis 1 and verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Seems like a, a very simple scripture. I, I would guess that many of you, as you were growing up uh, and you were learning memory verses at home and you were doing Bible drills at home with your parents, this would be one of the first verses that you learned. You learned John 3.16, and you learned Genesis 1 and verse 1, and you learned Jesus wept, that verse 2. Uh, and sometimes we, we, are, we are tempted to think that th these verses we learned when we were young, that they, these are children's verses, these are children's Bible passages, and, and uh, we, we read the verse and we just think about the little ones and patting them on the head, bless their little hearts, they're so sweet. Genesis 1 and verse 1 is one of the most profound verses in all the Bible, and actually one of the most profound thoughts in all of life. And so I'm going to suggest to you this morning the significance of this scripture cannot be overestimated. If you accept this verse that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and everything in it, that becomes a central point of reference for everything else. Everything else. But if Genesis 1 and verse 1 is rejected, that also is full of implication. And in reality, it leaves a person adrift in a sea of ambiguity in life, the, a fog that never lifts, an ambiguity 
that is never conquered. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We are quickly arriving at a time, it seems in this country for some time, we we have as a culture, we've been determined to follow the the trail that had been blazed in Western Europe through the centuries. Uh, we're, We're always a generation or two or three behind them. But there seems to be some longing in this country to follow after their way of thought and their way of life and and their way of thinking. And atheism in Western Europe uh, has been gaining ground for some time now. And I'm saying to you, atheism in this country is gaining ground quickly. But, But I think it's important for Christians to remember that atheism, Atheism is not a phenomenon of the 21st century, not even of the 20th century. A long time ago, long before the Christ walked on the earth, the psalmist wrote in Psalm 14 and verse 1, the fool has said in his heart, There is no God. So the Apostle Paul, when you fast forward to the first century, he's writing to the Christians who are living in Rome, and he is quite aware of the paganism that characterizes the the Roman world of the first century. He's quite aware of the paganism of the Greek culture and now the paganism of the Roman culture. He is quite aware of the fact that some of the most lauded thinkers of those centuries did not believe in God. Paul writes to them, and he said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because it's the power of God unto salvation. Wasn't popular. This wasn't the dominant belief of that culture. It's not even the dominant belief of the city, of the region. Paul was not writing from the Bible belt. Paul said, I want you to know something. Even even in my circumstances, I am not ashamed. And then he said, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God, listen, listen carefully. For what can be known about God is plain to them. Do you see that in Romans 1 and verse 19? That passage is important. What can be known about God is plain to them. Why? Because God has shown it to them. So don't say that it's not. I'll tell you, there's a danger sometimes. In our our quest to identify with 
with, with an unbeliever and, and to empathize with him where he is and trying to bring him to belief. And there's a danger sometimes to become a bleeding heart and to, to go too far in all of this. Well, I just, I just can't see that God is there. I can't see the evidence. I just can't see any reasonable uh, uh, understanding for myself that there's... I, I want to tell you something. The Holy Spirit said, what can be known about God is plain because God revealed it. To them. And then he said, because God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the what? Creation of the world. We're right back to Genesis 1 and verse 1. His eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So then they are without excuse. Significant that we understand that from the beginning, God revealed himself even in his creation. Now, I'm saying to you this morning, Paul said, of the Gentiles of the first century, they are without excuse. It's inexcusable to be ignorant of God. But that ignorance of God was not limited just to the atheistic world. When Paul wrote, to the church in Corinth. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and in verse 34, he said in verse 33, we're very familiar with that scripture, do not be deceived. Evil companions or bad company will corrupt good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. And then listen to what he said. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Now, I want you to note something about verse 34. Paul's not writing that to atheists. He's writing this to the church in Corinth. And he's saying to them, that we've got a problem here, Houston. There's a problem here. Some have no knowledge of God. I'm saying this to your shame. And over and over again, Paul is indicating that ignorance of God among atheists, among those who claim to be followers of Christ, ignorance of God is inexcusable. So, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
So what does that mean? Well, there, there are all kinds of things implied in that statement. That statement is enormous in its implications. I want to suggest three things to you very quickly about this. If in fact, if in fact God created the heavens and the earth, and if in fact God as the creator is as he is revealed to us in this text, then God created the man and the woman, and over and over again, as uh, you will be studying through the text uh, with Bobby next week, over and over again, God is going to say through the Holy Spirit, and God saw what he had made, and behold, it was good. It was good. That includes the man and the woman. And the problem is not what God made. And the, and the Gnostics missed it here because the Gnostics determined that the real problem in, in this world is, is, the physical, is the physical reality. It's the physical things. The real problem is the physical body. And I'm saying to you, that's not the problem. What God made, what God created was good. The real problem was sin that distorted God's purpose in his creation. And so in, in Romans chapter 1, the Apostle Paul is going to talk about that time when God is going to redeem his creation and deliver them from this bondage and this burden of sin that they have been under all of this time. Two things we need to know. That if mankind is part of God's creation in Genesis chapter 1 says that God created man in his own image. Male and female created he them. They are made in the image of God. But the first thing we need to understand about man is that he is created. He is the creature. He is not the creator. There's a difference. Man is finite and limited because man has arrived and the woman has arrived as a result of the creative activity of God. It is the very fact of creation by God that gives meaning to the existence of man. Humans are finite and limited. They are the creature, not the creator. And the Apostle Paul is going to make that very point in Romans chapter 1 when he talks about the utter, the utter folly of idolatry, creating images of earthly things that were created and ignoring the God, the power, the divinity that created all of this. The second implication as it pertains to man and woman, not only that they are finite, they are the creature, not the creator, but also 
that man and woman, as they are created by God, are good. The way that God made us was perfect. There was nothing wrong with the way that we have been made. It's just fine. It's according to the plan of God. And so when you think about what it means, if Genesis 1 and verse 1 is true, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, all that is there. If Genesis 1 is true, if God is the creator, if we're here as the result of creation, that's full of implications, beginning with the fact that we come to understand some things about ourselves right here in Genesis chapter 1. The second thing I'd have you understand is that creation, the concept of creation, implies many things about worship. The, the fact of creation is the very foundation of our worship to God. Creation is the foundation of worship. I'm going to ask you to look in the book of Psalms very quickly. I'll just ask you to turn to two. Though the Psalms are full of this concept. In Psalm 33 and verse 1, the psalmist said, Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Now, we're shouting praises of joy to the Lord. Look in verse 6. Why? Why are we praising God? What is the foundation of this worship to God? Look at verse 6. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And by the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him because he spoke and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. That's why the world should stand in awe of him. That is why we should stand up and praise him, because he created all of this. This is all of his, and his creation rightly responds to him in this way. And so in the fourth chapter of John's Revelation, when John is giving us a glimpse behind the curtain into the throne room, and the lamb who has been slain is seated on the throne. And the elders and the heavenly host are gathered around him. I want you to look at verse 11 of Romans, uh, Revelation chapter 4. And I want you to notice something here. As they are worshiping God in heaven, the lamb is on the throne. As they are worshiping God front and center of everything that's happening in heaven is the lamb. And I want you to notice carefully what they're saying to him. Verse 11, worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power because or for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Why is all of heaven praising God? First and foremost, because he created all things. The very fact of creation is the answer to the question 
of why God is worthy of worship. Secondly, creation not only is the foundation of worship, creation makes God alone worthy of worship. And so that's the very point that Paul is making in Romans chapter 1. How ridiculous to be worshiping the created thing and completely ignoring the one who is the creator of it all. What a ridiculous thing. And so David is going to say, as he is gathering all the treasures for the building of the temple, and they bring this great offering uh, to the Lord in 2 Chronicles chapter 29, and David is going to acknowledge to the Lord, Lord, he didn't say, Lord, look at what we have done and brought to you in such a wonderful gift. He said, Lord, look how abundantly you have blessed us so that we could give this. And what is he saying? He's saying to God, everything that we are and everything that we have comes from you. That's why he's worthy to be prayed. And thirdly and finally, from the very fact of creation, we learn something about ethics. Ethics, what, what we ought to do. And why, as a matter of fact, ought we to do it? We're, we're talking about here obligation and motivation. What ought I to do in my life? Is there something I ought to do? We're living in a culture that doesn't like that word, doesn't like that concept. What I ought to do. It's the question of norm. And why ought I to do it? That's the question of obligation. And ladies and gentlemen, the question of obligation is a question of authority. Of obligation. I'm obligated to do this. I am under obligation. Don't do this. Why? By what right? By what authority? Can anybody say that? God can. On what basis? On this basis. He made us. That's the entire argument. He made us. God has a natural dominion over us as, by virtue of our creation. The creator to the creature. He not only made us, we are his. He can do as he will. And I want to say this. God has that natural dominion over his creation even before, even before he has dominion by consent over us as his children. What does that mean? God, God has natural dominion over us as our creator. We are his creatures. Someone says, well, I, I choose not to believe in God. 
that's your choice. But let me just say to you, you can choose not to believe in God, but God's not gone anywhere. He's still right there. It's like someone's sticking their finger into an electrical socket and saying, I choose not to believe in electricity. Well, you're in for a shock, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm telling you, you can choose not to believe in it. It's not going to change the reality of what's about to happen. There's a difference between obligation and motivation. Ladies and gentlemen, we're obligated to God because he created us. We're motivated to serve God in part because he loved us and offered us the redemption by the blood of his own son. Someone says, well, I'm not accepting that. God's not going to force you to accept that. The, the gift of his son on Calvary was given as a motivation of love. It was because God so loved the world. That was the motivation. Well, let me tell you, if you reject that, the obligation remains. God is still the creator. And we are still the creatures. And one of the things we come to understand in all of this <clears throat> is that when a person arrives at a point that he truly believes in God as his creator, A lot of things follow. And when a person arrives at a point where he says, I do not believe that God created me. Also, a lot of things follow. But it does not change the reality of all the implications of creation. And so this morning, we're, we're gathered here, and, and we are extending the invitation of the Lord, not just because, not, not just because God is our creator, we're extending the invitation of the Lord because God as our creator has motivated us to return to him by the gift of his own son. And the remarkable thing, the marvelous thing, the incredible thing is that God is willing to forgive us and to receive us back as is on. If you're here this morning and not a Christian, what a wonderful time for you to respond.
to the gospel of Jesus Christ, if you have never bowed your knee to the Lord, would be happy today to witness you doing that, even as you give your life in submission to him and obedience, not only to make the confession of your faith, but to be united with him in baptism for the remission of your sins. And if you're a child of God here today, but for whatever reason, you have wandered from the Lord. What a wonderful time to come home. While we stand and sing, we invite you to come. There's gladness in believing in Jesus, there is life.